0: If you would stand for the reading of God's Word, we're beginning a new series this morning in the book of James. We'll start with chapter one, going verses one through four, and we're going to spend this whole fall semester up through or up to Advent in James chapter one and James chapter two. And then we'll kick back into James in the early part of 2016 in chapter three. And this morning, this is setting the stage for us coming to the table coming to feast with this meal that the Lord has prepared for us, one of his sacraments, one of the means of grace by which we can be encouraged. So hear now the word of the Lord from James chapter 1, 1 through 4. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Lord, it's your word. This is your church. This is your table. And all here today who are in Christ are your people. We are eager to be fed. We long to be transformed Oh, Father, we need you. We all come from various places this day with with hearts heavy and, and minds perhaps confused, our lives overwhelmed by all that's before us. And, oh, Lord, we pray that you would enter in, intervene, transform, illuminate. Holy Spirit, show us things we've never seen before. Make us different. And as we come to the table as believers to eat, Oh Lord, as you've taught us, use these elements to transform our lives, reminding us of who you are for your glory's sake. We pray by your grace in Jesus' name, amen. I want you to identify just quietly right now in your heart and mind what trial you're going through. What is it? There's probably more than one, maybe many. What's going on in your heart and mind that is tempting you not to believe? In everything that God has taught us and everything that God has promised. What is it? Is it your marriage? Is it another relationship? Is it your status of being single? Is it your heart heavy because of a a relationship at work? Is it your children and just how they're being treated at school or how they're treating you or each other at home? Is it a doctor's appointment that you have this week? And the doctor's office said, we want you to come in and you need to bring somebody with you. What trial are you under right now? Are you under a trial where you don't think you have any trials? Are you living in denial that your life has bumped into a wall and that wall is thick and high and dense? And you're tempted to climb over it or go around it or dig under it or run away from it or just deny that it's there. What trial are you in? Now think about this. Everyone in here, right now, has a trial. They're either going through one, coming out of one, or moving towards one. This is the reality of life, this side of heaven. And James starts this letter to these 12 tribes, the dispersions, the scattered people. He brings these words to bear immediately in this very direct letter count it all joy or consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. So with the trial that you're now facing, are you counting it all joy? This is dangerous. Because here's where Christians often act very superficial. Using Christianese or taking verses out of context, they kind of make them feel better. In fact, sometimes it manifests itself in songs we sing. Like one song that was very popular in the 80s and early 90s. We would sing, brokenness is what I long for. Brokenness is what I need. I hate that song. (laughs) I hate it. I mean it. Because it's not true. It's not what I long for. Not when I see what God is capable of doing as it relates to brokenness. Not when I can see what God can do, even to his own son, to heal brokenness. I like every part of that song except that section. So I just don't sing it. If I was speaking at a youth event and that's the song that they played before I come up to speak, I just didn't know. Brokenness is not what I long for. It is what I need, but I need to make sure as a Christian I'm identified more not by my brokenness, but by the deliverance and victory that I have in Christ Jesus, who is the head of his church. It's important. So Paul is, or James is not saying here, Hey, consider it all joy. Your marriage is a disaster. (laughs) Consider it all joy. Your kids don't talk to you. He's not saying that we just simply say these superficial things. He's saying that we believe something so deep that it gives us a joy as a product of the fruit of abiding in Jesus Christ. I don't walk into a hospital room where a woman is wondering whether or not her husband will leave the hospital and say the first things out of my mouth, consider it a joy. Your husband may in just about an hour be in the presence of the Lord. Let's praise God. That's not what God is getting at here through His servant James. It's not what He's about. Husbands do die. Wives do die. Children die. And in the midst of real trials, the Lord is calling us To count it all joy, but the joy is very deep. Who wrote this letter? Let's start there. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what he doesn't say? He doesn't say everything about who he is. He's actually Jesus' half-brother. If I was a brother of Jesus, I think I would have said it. You know, Mark, Jesus is my brother, and I'm a servant of him. He's the Lord. You know why he doesn't? Everybody knows. They know who James is. James sees himself primarily not as just a brother of the Lord, but a servant of his brother who is the Lord of all. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he writes this letter. Now this is a unique letter. It's not a letter that was written to a specific church like Paul would write to Corinth or Ephesus, or Thessalonica, or Philippi. This is called a general epistle, or a circular epistle. It's a letter that was written to be read by all of those believers who were scattered in many churches. Now, why were they scattered? You know what the ultimate answer is? God scattered them. God used persecution and poverty as as two primary marks of the, the culture of the church at this time. To scatter his people. Why? Because wherever Christians would go, the light of Christ would be in those people. And the message of the gospel would be advancing throughout the Roman Empire, throughout other parts of the earth, all the way till we come to this point this day where we as Christians are all about being scattered, scattered to places of work, scattered to schools, scattered to the nations. So God scatters his people I imagine most of them didn't want to be scattered. But the persecution was so great. The poverty was so tremendous that they just had to go. But as they went, the message also went. So James is writing this circular letter, a general epistle to the churches. Now, throughout church history, not everyone has been a big fan of the book of James. And largely because those who preach grace, which is what we all should be preaching, sometimes felt like James focuses too much on our what? Works. And we are justified by grace alone, by faith alone. That's true. Martin Luther was one who wasn't extremely fond of the book of James. In fact, he called James an epistle of straw. He felt like it was far inferior to the Pauline epistles. He actually included it in his translations. But he did not believe it was the best. In fact, even questioned whether it should have been part of the canon. Why? Because Martin Luther was coming out of such an intense enslavement to works. He was coming out of this real dogmatic sense that if I don't perform and do all these things, I will not be accepted by God until in meditating upon revelation, the Holy Spirit grabbed hold of his heart and suddenly he saw grace. So he was reacting to this book. But he reacted incorrectly. In fact, if you read other parts of Martin Luther's theology you really see that he didn't disagree with James perhaps as much as he thought. For example, in his commentary on Paul's letter to the Romans, the Roman, the book of Romans, listen to what Luther says at the very beginning in his introduction. This is really amazing. In his preface to Romans, Martin Luther declares that real faith is a living, busy, active mighty thing, this faith, it is impossible for it not to be doing good works incessantly. It never asks whether good works are to be done. It has done them before the question can be asked and is always doing them. Whoever does not do such works is, this is from Martin Luther, it's amazing, whoever does not do such works is an unbeliever. Thus, it is impossible to separate works from faith quite as impossible as to separate heat and light from fire well that's what james is saying it's exactly what james is saying this book of james which is so practical is essentially demanding by the grace of god and for the glory of god that those churches scattered would believe so deeply would have so much faith that it had to exit. In other words, it had to exit through their hands and feet, that which in their minds and heart they believed. And by the way, that's what it means to be deep in faith. Sometimes in Christian circles, we tend to think that deep teaching or deep thinking simply means intellectual, very high, bright, big words, things like that. That doesn't mean deep. It can mean deep. But just because it's intelligent and sounds a little bit complicated and hard to understand doesn't mean it's deep. Just because you're a smart Christian doesn't mean you're a deep Christian. It also isn't deep if it's in your mind in an intense way and also connected to your heart where you are thinking rightly and you're, you're feeling rightly. But if it stops there, it's not as deep as you think. And here's why. Deep truth penetrating into our souls becomes so effectuous that it has to exit. Deep teaching calls people to a place of transformation that's happening inside the person, but visible outside the person. In other words, it exits through our hands and feet. When we understand God's love for us, how he adopted us, how he sent his own son to die for us, And that just overwhelms our mind with that profound glory. And that goes to our heart where we have that sense of God really loves me and calls me. Here I am, Lord, and you will use me. It's deep in the heart and you feel it. It has to exit. Just singing a song about here I am, Lord, send me, I'll go, but then never going. That means you don't get the song. It means you don't get the word. You see, deep, truth, penetrating a heart is what happened to Peter. Remember Peter, the one who said, Jesus, I'll die for you. And then said three times, I don't know the man. And then on the shoreline, Jesus said, Peter, do you love me three times? He said, yes, three times. Three times Jesus said, feed my sheep. Deep transformation happened in Peter's life. When those religious people who were very smart and had big words, who were like whitewashed tombs, when they told Peter no longer to speak in the name of Jesus, you know what Peter said? Judge for yourselves whether it is right for us to obey God or man, for we cannot help speaking about what we've seen and heard. That's deep. We can't, we can't be quiet. Do what you want to us, but I can't stop speaking. What? About what, Peter? About high and heavy and intellectual terms and self-righteousness? No. About a God who made me, a God that I rejected, a God that then made breakfast for me on the shoreline, a God who asked me, Do I love him? Who said, Then go and feed my sheep, a God that died on the cross for me. That's deep. So, James is a book about works works born out of a real faith. And he's very practical. And he begins the practicality right away after he says, this is who I am, this is who I'm writing to. And he says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. So now back to the beginning of the sermon. What's your trial? Imagine just going around the room if we had time and I could just say, what's your trial? And David speaks. What's your trial? And Andy speaks. What's your trial? And Elizabeth speaks. All around this room, there are trials of various kinds. There are personal trials that individuals are going through. Some struggling to get pregnant. Others feeling the effects of what it means to be a mom. And the child is rebellious. Trials of those who've just come out of an enormous season of treatment and their scans are clear and others who have no idea what they're about to see. That's all around us. Those are personal trials. But then there's also corporate trials. The trials that we as a church called PCPC face together. Trials that we as a small expression of the big C church experience. And Paul like James, and like Peter, and like Jesus, reveals to us that the trials are going to be real. I imagine the ones that James is speaking to mostly have to do with persecution and poverty. These parents had real children, real children that were probably very hungry, who suddenly said, why are we leaving? And they're being scattered. It was a real time and real events. So in those real events and those real times, James says... Count it all joy. Let's talk about trials for a minute. You've identified a hope in your heart and mind, those which you're experiencing now or have experienced. I hope you're not thinking too much about the ones you might be experiencing. Don't go to the future. You don't need to right now. Just be present. I want to say two things about trials. First is this. Trials threaten our very lives. The word trial really means test. And these tests actually threaten our very lives. They can threaten our, our, our lives physically, emotionally, relationally. But I just want you to hear this. They do threaten our lives. First, when a trial comes or a test comes, it threatens our life in the moment as we know it. When a woman discovers a lump and she begins to move towards a doctor who's going to tell her what that means, her life is altered. That trial, that test certainly threatens life as she knows it and as her family knows it. An individual at work is called in for a meeting, not anticipating what the boss is about to say. What comes out of that meeting threatens his life or her life as he knows it. Discovering something that our children are doing or looking at or thinking threatens our lives as we know it. Wondering who will be the next leader of this country and who will be leading other countries, the persecution they might bring, the foolishness that they might embrace, it threatens our lives as we know it. But trials also threaten our lives as we want it. What do you want your life to be like? Just start with this afternoon. What do you want it to be like? My guess is that you want to eat food that's good. Getting a nap would be nice. Maybe some form of recreation. What you want is the same thing I want. I want peace. I want comfort. I want I want to know that I'm secure today. This afternoon. But whatever trial you are facing threatens the very life that you want. And when we face the trials, we hit the wall. The trial could be small, it could be big, the wall could be thick, could be high. And like I said earlier, when you hit it, you want to run. You want to dig under, you want to climb over, you want to deny that it's there. But the Lord doesn't desire for that to happen. In fact, he won't allow it to happen. What he says is we're going through it. We're going through it together. But as we hit the wall, the trial threatens our life. And it also tests our faith. I think Christians often are not very honest here. When a trial comes, the test comes, it's meant to test your faith. Many Christians feel like It would be terrible to admit their faith is being tested. But let me tell you, when a trial and test comes, particularly the severest of trials and tests, your faith is tested. It's tested in three ways. First, you question the attributes of God. The song, Immortal, Invisible, God Only Wise, it tells us who God is and who we are not, and we are not God. God is omnipotent, all-powerful. He is omniscient, all-knowing. He is omnipresent. He is everywhere present. Do you think Satan is powerful? He is, but he's not omnipotent. Do you think Satan is powerful? He is, but he's not omniscient. Do you think Satan is powerful? He is, but he's not omnipresent. God is. There's nothing God can learn. When we hit a trial and our faith is truly tested, it's easy to question the attributes of God. If we don't question the attributes of God, second thing we question is his character. Maybe you have a hard time admitting that God might not be all-powerful, all-knowing. But if you're honest, you wonder why this all-powerful, all-knowing God is letting you go through this trial. Or letting your loved one experience this trial. So we question his attributes. We question his character. And if we waver in that long enough, there is a moment where we might even begin to question his existence where are you, God? And it might begin with an earnest cry, God, where are you? Like the psalmist who cried those cries. But then it might lead towards a complete disbelief, belief in the existence of God. It happens. It happens to people that you could never imagine it happening to. People to whom this test takes them to the brink of a crisis of faith. Writing about such experiences One of my favorite writers from Fort Worth, a gentleman named Ken Geyer, who went to Dallas Theological Seminary, he writes beautifully. You might not agree with everything he says, but he writes beautifully. This title, uh, the title of this book is called The North Face of God. He starts in the introduction with this statement. Every time I watch the nightly news, it seems that somewhere in the world, a new river of blood begins to flow. It's true, isn't it? And we don't really need to look to the Middle East. We can look to Highland Park or University Park or Lake Highlands or West Dallas or Oak Cliff. You can look right across the street, to your left and to your right. And if you're honest, you can look in the mirror and at those around your lunch table or dinner table. Every time I watch the nightly news, it seems that somewhere in the world, a new river of blood begins to flow. And our hearts get heavy and overwhelmed by that brokenness. I read this book a number of years ago, and when I turned to page 96, I realized I was in the book. It was a story about a man named David. His real name's not David. I won't tell you his real name. He was seeking to protect this man, so I will too. My name, Mark, is not written in here. In fact, no name is written in here, but I'm in the book. I'm in a particular quote, a quote that's pulled out of this man David's journal. David and his wife longed to have children, but because of a condition in her heart, she couldn't. So there's the first trial. We wanted kids, we can't have them. So they adopted two a girl. A little bit older than the boy that they adopted. The boy, from the very earliest of ages, was hard, it was very troubled. They were in my church where I was acting as a youth pastor. As the young boy moved into middle school and then into high school, and never made it out of high school, and certainly not then to college. The reality of this trial, this test in David's life was going to prove to be profound. It was going to take him to the place where he would, he would truly wonder, God, do you exist? He had served on Young Life staff for a couple of decades. He then went into to business and had a ministry there as well. But he was taken to the brink. and Here's why. Listen to his journal. God, you gave me a father's heart and a son who is unresponsive to me. You called me and trained me as a man of God and in ministry. And my wife and I will tell you, because this couple mentored us, I've never seen a man and woman so desperate to make the name of Jesus known. You called me and trained me, but no prayer, scripture, church, friend, pastor, youth director. That's me. That was me. Mark nobody's been able to reach our son we've been praying and maybe you maybe you would be the one that God would use no church no friend no pastor no organization no youth director has touched my son if anything he's worse how bad is worse when he's 15 after seeing probably his fifth psychologist, they said, by 18, your son will either be dead or in jail. He didn't die at 18. He died at 31. By 18, he was in jail. I went to see him. If anything, he's worse. How do I reconcile this with your love and your power? Power. Attributes. How can I reconcile this with your character, your love. And he began to move towards, do you even exist? And if you do exist, do you exist here? And do you exist in me? He writes on, your ways seem unfair. Your sentence is too harsh and too long. I'm trapped, hopeless, helpless, And powerless. And so is my son. This journey was long. Five men came around David. And committed to pray with him every week for two hours at a time. A day. God deliver this young man. Save this young man. There were signs of God doing work. But each time there was a step forward, there were massive steps back. Count it all joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. David got on his bike. He rode his bike five miles in the cold to sit in the prayer chapel of our church and decided that he would wait God out. He brought his Bible his broken heart, and his journal. After reading a while and journaling a while, praying a while, the Holy Spirit moved in his life with this question. If I never heal your son, if I never speak to you the way you want, can I still be your God? Will you still love me Still honor me. Still serve me. Tears stream down David's face. Yes. Even if you never heal my son. Even if you never speak. The way I wish you would. You will still be my God. You are God. You are God. And yes. Yes. I will still love you, still honor you, and still serve you. It was a long, thick, high wall that the Lord would not let him run from, deny was there, climb over, go around, or use superficial spirituality to simply say, it's a trial. But he took him through this profound brokenness so that he could show himself to be faithful and trustworthy. This story doesn't end with, and then at 28, he suddenly got his act together. He died a young man. the Circumstances around his death, very rough. Signs and things that this young man, his son, wrote that seemed as if there was faith, but no one really had absolute assurance. David is now no longer on this earth either. Another trial of wicked illness that basically made his lungs become like concrete and he suffocated to death. Painful. It was the way the Lord drew this man David to himself. Near the end of his death, near the end of his life, the beginning of what he would soon see in glory, the joy That James is talking about was so evident. I had the privilege of knowing him and knowing him well. And his answer was this In the midst of these tests and these trials, our very life is being threatened, our faith is being tested. Life as we know it. and Life as we want it. But that's not the way we're to live. We are to live the way in which Christ called us to live. According to the way he said our life would be. In this side of heaven he said our life would be full of tests. But listen to what he said. The purpose of these tests. They are to make us mature and complete. Not lacking anything. James uses the word Perfect. And that's what he's doing. Right now, if you are in Christ Jesus, God uses those trials that you've identified to make you more and more like him. As you trust the very things that he says about his attributes. As you trust the very things he says about his character. As you trust the fact that he does exist even everywhere. All present. When it feels like he's far away. And when that happens... You recognize it's only because he could make you believe. And how does he do it? He gives us the means of grace. He gives us this, his word. He gives us prayer. And he gives us his bread. This bread, his body. And he gives us the cup. This is his blood. This table is for Christians. Christians who are following Jesus Christ to who are part of a Bible-believing church. This is not a Presbyterian table. It's the church's table. This is for you who are in Christ to come and eat and drink. But if you're not a Christian, this table's not for you. Maybe you're on your way to discovering the grace of God and his love for you. But as others come forward in Christ, lest you would come and eat and drink judgment on yourself, I want to encourage you to stay in your seat and just think about all you've heard and all that is being experienced. This table is for the body of Christ in which Jesus is the head. This morning as we come to this table, I want you to come with celebration. Whatever the trial is, we come celebrating the one who went through the ultimate trial. Jesus there on that hill, a river of blood flowing from his face, from his hands and his feet on Golgotha, that place there on earth. He finished what we couldn't finish and he started what we could never start and he's finishing that which he started your faith in him he has given us these elements to remind us of that so as we come come and feast be present in the moment your children are being cared for this is an important day for the people of god feast be still be present also in each of the corners of the church. There will be elders and women there to pray with you. If there's something that you're going through that you would love to have prayer for, please just step up to them and let us pray for you. It would be our honor. Let's not prepare to go to the table.